Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm learning about using your body to guide your burnout prevention or recovery with life and career coach, Dr. Lara Kaur. I wanted to speak with Lara because she was recommended to me by a previous guest from Australia. She had also transitioned out of academia due to burnout, so I wanted to learn from her experience. As I got to know Lara from her emails and online coaching presence, I loved her glowing positivity. It's infectious. She also doesn't hold back in expressing her thoughts about the lack of paid leave in the US as an Australian observer. I always appreciate having the perspective and humor that an invigorating coach can bring. This week's Behavior Change Guide, based on the episode and Laura's advice, focuses on filtering your expectations through a mediocre man mindset. Yep, she said it, and it works. You can find the guide and Lara's key takeaways on the episode website, drjacquelinecurr.com. And next week, I'll be doing a mini episode on how to set up a plan for filtering your expectations through that mediocre mindset, as recommended by Lara. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Lara Kaur. I have one daughter who's eight. I am a single mother and I am a life and career coach for women who really want to love their work. And I'm also a researcher in women's work and mental well-being. I also just want to point out some things since you can't see me. I'm a white woman, I'm queer, and I also am disabled uh, with invisible disabilities. And I live in Nam, which is the Indigenous word or name for Melbourne in, in Australia, on the lands of the Kulin Nations. And I pay respect to the Wurundjeri elders. It's the people from the area that I live in, past, present and emerging, and to elders, past, present and emerging from other First Nations people all around the world. Laura, that's just such a beautiful introduction. I've never heard one like that. So thank you for sharing that with us. So tell us a little more about your journey to where you are now in your career. Oh my gosh, you think you're going one way and you end up somewhere completely different. So I've always been completely obsessed with finding work that feels right. And when I say obsessed, I should probably say anxious. I remember going to the university counsellor when I was in my first year saying, I don't know what I want to be. I don't know what I want to be. I was desperate to be one of those people that had a career that was, I'm going to be a doctor and I'll be a doctor forever. I just wanted something really simple and straightforward. I was working in everything from retail to real estate and pharmacy and studied science at university. I did the hard sciences and I really didn't want to do an honours. The idea of having to do honours in a hard science made me incredibly sad, actually. I started working as a research assistant and then ended up being in public health almost exclusively for the next 15 years or so. And then, which is where our stories converge, got really bad burnout. So I was going hell for leather in research. I was switched on all the time. 
I was always thinking about research. I was always playing with ideas. I loved being constantly intellectually stimulated. And I was also completely obsessed with the next gold shiny star. And I know you spoke in another one of your podcasts about not celebrating small wins. And it was exactly the same. And I think it's a real cultural thing in academia that it's okay that paper was published good let's go next never mind that it took however long to do the paper or what you achieved by doing it so I was working full-time and doing a PhD full-time which was also what was common in my research group supported by amazing clever kind women but we were all working the same way they all had children as well so it all looked quite doable and towards the end of my PhD I decided that now was probably a good time to have a child and I was lucky enough to get pregnant and have one and I kept working and working had my daughter was rocking her and carrying her around putting her to sleep formulating paragraphs of my PhD in my head and never really stopped I just added being a full-time caregiver to everything else and in the end I was so exhausted that I put on or helped put on a symposium in an area that I didn't even know much about that was in a different state in Australia and after saying probably for a year this isn't sustainable this isn't sustainable just absolutely fell in a heap and I was almost carried to the car that day and then the next day I was at a friend's house and just slid off the chair and fell asleep and that basically that's when my body just decided it had enough and there was no pushing through and I was excellent at pushing through and so for me burnout was not so much about cynicism and disconnection as complete total and utter exhaustion and just yeah just that that idea of not being able to push through which was incredibly difficult for me to accept. One of the points where there is that differentiation between burnout and depression is burnout does also come with that. You can't switch your brain off as one of the symptoms, whereas depression, your brain isn't overworking in that way, but burnout, your brain is overworking in that way. And when I read about that, it really helped me see that difference because you do feel like you can't switch off. You're always thinking. It's so true. It's such a beautiful and important distinction to make because yeah, I really wasn't depressed. I I thought I was doing pretty well. I just thought, oh, don't I just find my job so interesting? And my um, husband at the time would say, you know, you never stop and you don't have any hobbies and you don't do anything except work. And I was just like, oh, but I love it. You know, this is my hobby. I'm just lucky my work is my hobby. So all these ways that we uh, convince ourselves that essentially being a workaholic is totally healthy and great. I know. And the night my husband during a fight actually said that to me, it's not my fault. You have no hobbies or no friends. That was such a low point for me because I did. I said, yes, even all my hobbies that I loved are now chores. And it did. It just felt so hopeless from that perspective. So yeah, I can really resonate with that. Very single-minded, right? About our careers and about our research and loving it so much, but yet so exhausted by it. Yes, absolutely. That perfect storm of mixing together the culture in academia, which is very competitive, which is very much about don't stop. There's always more to do. There's, you've never done enough. 
that mixed with how women are socialised, mixed with whatever childhoods and backgrounds that we've had and our own beliefs and thoughts and all of that kind of thing was just the absolute perfect storm for me. And let us share with the listeners to what you experienced when I asked about your burnout journey by email. Yes. So Jacqueline asked about what had happened with me in burnout and I actually couldn't write back to her for probably a week easily because I felt really emotional about it. And I didn't realise that I hadn't really thought it through and that I hadn't really been asked about it before, which is funny because I'm a great help seeker. I'm a very open person. I have beautiful friends that are very supportive and I've got a fantastic ex who is just incredible. And yet I still hadn't really looked at that part of my life. I just brushed it aside and moved on. Yeah, so it was quite emotional thinking about that. All the time in bed, all the time not knowing if I was going to get better or if this was me now. Yeah, the time not being able to be the kind of caregiver that I wanted to be for my daughter. And definitely the time of just having to let go more and more and more things that I loved, as well as I have to say the the deliciousness of of having a wonderful excuse of letting go of the things I didn't want to do that I was doing. (laughs) But yeah, it really had a huge impact on my life. And I think people don't necessarily quite appreciate how long it can take to recover from burnout. What, What was the sort of trajectory of your journey and how can we prepare people for this journey? I would say maybe a year or two. And so it does take a while to recover from, but I would say what speeds it up a lot, which I didn't do, (laughs) is to really lean into your recovery. So grieve what you need to let go of and just know that it's for this point in your life, like it's not actually forever. I, I knew that I was burnt out, but it was also medically treated like, oh, we don't know what's wrong with you and we don't know if you'll get better or not. But I never put that together and I really took that thought of I might not get better and ran with it. I thoroughly encourage listeners to not carry that thought with them, just to know that this is a season of life. This is your body saying, okay, you need to reset. There's some things that are off kilter. You need to listen to me. There's a saying that I really love that I've adjusted slightly, which is your body starts with a whisper and ends with a sledgehammer. And my body was whispering and boy, did I ignore it. I ignored and I ignored and I ignored until the sledgehammer came. And obviously we'd like to have people avoid being burnt out, but it's an incredible opportunity to actually connect with your body and start to really work out what you want and who you are instead of going on automatic pilot. I think automatic pilot is a really good analogy. And and I think I have discussed this with other guests and said this before, it's that physical downfall that happens with your body really is one of the, the symptoms. I was grateful that my body let me down because it I paid attention to that, whereas I was very good at quashing my thoughts. I couldn't actually stop the shaking, the crying, the inability to breathe. I had to pay attention to those things and I couldn't hide them from anyone else either. I was very much full on, definitely in front of my husband, but certainly in front of one of my managers too. It was really Yeah, it was very apparent. And I have to really say that something that I talk a lot with my clients about generally is that our bodies don't let us down. Our minds have let our bodies down. And 
what's really happened is that we've ignored what our bodies have needed for so long that that they just have essentially a tantrum and say that's it sort your shit out (laughs) and I actually also loved your point about grieving I read a lot of books about grief and this too shall pass by Julia Samuel really did help me think through how it could pass. So this particular book was written by a therapist and she shared all these stories of different people and none of them was my story, but in all of them, I could resonate with something. It just made it so normal that that we do go through these things and there is an ebb and flow of, of that. And I think one of the other things I learned, and I think this will launch our conversation into your current role as a coach, But one of the things I learned from a coach was saying, how about 50-50? How about half the days you're happy and half the days you're sad? And that's okay. It sounded so negative to me the first time I heard that. But it's funny because now I do actually use that with my teenage son who does tend to get down. And I was like, okay, today was one of your not so good days. Having some of those is okay. So yeah, tell us more about how you discovered coaching and then transitioned to being a coach? Yes. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I'm already smiling because I just love it. I like to joke that Oprah was my real mother. I've always loved self-help and always really liked Martha Beck. I don't know if you've heard of Martha Beck, but. Oh yes. I've read her book, Martha Beck. Yeah. Did you do her school of coaching? So I did do her school of coaching. And one day I just found myself on the coaching website and my whole body was screaming do it and my mind was just saying no this is a ridiculous idea and in the end it was the only thing that I could really focus and engage with it was quite clear that my body was saying to me this Lara this can we just do this see how we've got energy for this see how we can engage with this and I thought oh my gosh if this was my life that would be the most delicious existence to be able to coach. That's so amazing. And I love that your body's telling you that because I think that's so important. I don't know that I've necessarily had that experience myself, but I think when people are burned out and they hear something like that, to know that their body will awaken to saying, this is what I want to put energy into. That's just such a great message for people to. And so the the training that, Dr. Martha Beck provides is really, and her colleagues, is very much based on stripping back all the societal expectations and really looking at what she terms as your essential self, which I like to think of as the things that you cannot help but love, that your voice does light up, that your body moves differently that you get that sweet energy not the manic hyper it's just this kind of peace or joy and so we use the idea with the coaching that I do is that you really link in with that part of your body which is actually quite simple you link in with that to find out what you actually want what you actually need what you're actually drawn to what's actually draining you and then you use mind management to bring those things into life. It's quite thrilling because every person has a completely different path. Their bodies want totally different things. And often they're actually what they've got, but just not in in the exact formation they've got it right now. Interesting. So then part of your job is to bring that out from them. 
Yeah, yeah. So often we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of our working lives. If you get miserable in one job, you think, well, I need a total career change. And one of the fascinating things is really using the body knowledge tool to work out, do you actually like this content? Do you actually like this work or is it the people you're working with? Is it the company? Is it the hours? Is it that you actually have no time to yourself out of hours and so you're completely exhausted? What is actually the problem here? What do we need to change? And I, I find it hilarious how often it turns out that people love what they do. It's just that they need to change some of the, the things around it because they were so sure they needed to leave law or needed to leave medicine. Yeah, that's quite fun. And of course, some people do change completely, which is cool too. So why do you think the coaching is such an important tool for, for women and, and to prevent or recover from burnout? I, I certainly have benefited from it. That's why I'm interviewing coaches because I, I think you guys bring something amazing. But tell us a little bit more about why you think it's so important. The phenomenal thing about therapists, and I have such deep respect and adoration for therapists is that they bring you really from not functioning and from huge suffering to functioning and the wonderful thing about coaching is that it really takes you from functioning to thriving and I think that so many women function where we're wonderful at functioning no matter what is happening to the point of <laughs> ridiculousness really but we're not so great at thriving and we're socialized not to thrive we're socialized to not trust ourselves, to not trust our bodies. Like you think of all the gaslighting, you think of all of the, if we're taking it to a, a bigger level, you think of all the sexual harassment, you think of domestic violence, you think of the way women of colour have been totally disbelieved of their experiences. People, disabled people have not been believed of their experiences. Like we're, we're told not that we're not believable and that we're not to trust ourselves. And so coaching, I think, really helps people work out what shit they are believing that they have been socialized to believe and to share that and to see what they actually need and who they actually are and, and to really trust their bodies and to trust what they want and what they need to thrive. And I think that was just definitely something that I, I still probably am not in tune with completely, but certainly was something that I started to find more tuning because when I was working with my coach, trying to find ways where I, I could, because I had repressed my emotions for so long and ignored my body for so long. So to try and get back into it, actually the first time I tried to do a meditation, it felt like red ants were crawling up my legs and biting me and my legs were on fire. And it was such an uncomfortable experience for me. So I knew something was wrong with my connection with my body from that. So one of the things I did actually try, because I was struggling um, with my weight as well, was intuitive eating. And it was just so wonderful to basically go, what do I want to eat? You can eat anything you want. What do you want? And to open the fridge and go, or the cupboard, and go, nothing here looks exciting enough for me today. And just go, okay, I'm not hungry. And walk away. And then another time, just go, oh, I've got to eat this mango. This is the most wonderful thing in the world. And so I started to, through the intuitive eating, not only get 
over my hangups about always trying to be careful about what I ate and, and, and not enjoying eating at all because every calorie was a battle. Instead, just um, listen to my body for what it needed and what it wanted. And so that was like, for me, that was my first step into starting to listen to my body. I think I've got a lot more to do in that journey. And that's an amazing, huge thing have worked on and worked through that's actually a difficult practice intuitive eating it's a really difficult practice and you bring up such an excellent point because when we're talking about what women are socialized to do we're socialized to totally avoid hunger single hunger signals and there's so much pressure like don't be someone that doesn't eat but also don't be fat don't be this but don't be that there's so many mixed messages so it's just another reason why we switch off from our bodies But what I'm absolutely obsessed with and find such hope and joy in is thinking about neuroplasticity and the way that we can really rewire our mind-body connection. We can rewire our brain to think different thoughts. We might have this uh, superhighway at the moment, this thought that I'm not good enough or that I'm an imposter or people are going to find out I'm a fraud or something like that. But we can create this new little side path that might be a little bit like going through bushland at the start and can feel difficult. But in the end, you'll have this lovely path to walk through instead of which is nourishing and useful that gets you the results that you want in your life instead of that super highway to suffering and all the results you don't want. And we all have that option of, of rewiring our mind-body connection. We all have the option of rewiring our brains. And it's just practice. It's actually not really difficult. It's just being taught and then practicing it. And I think too, if people find that a little unbelievable, I learned the power of our bodies and our brains when I studied exercise science and saw how older adults, when they started exercising more, generated more white matter in their brains change, that the structure of their brains change. So we just know this now from all sorts of different areas. So for me, when I started reading and hearing about that, it didn't seem unbelievable to me because I had seen brain scans of older adults once they'd done volunteering work, for example, or exercise and, and seen the differences. And I'm like, wow, our brain can change. It's amazing. Yes, that saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, is completely incorrect. Yeah, I just think about my beautiful father-in-law, ex-father-in-law, who learned to write again after a stroke and to read again after a stroke. That's all neuroplasticity. I, I know you tell your story about meditation and your first experiences of it, and I know that when I first tried to do a body scan, so when you're using your mind to think about different parts of your body and kind of feel what's happening there, feel if it's hot, cold, tingly, whatever it might be. And I was just like a brain on a stick. I couldn't feel anything. And now you tell me, feel your left big toe and I can feel it in a second. And that's just wiring in that connection from your mind to your body just by using intentional thought. It does sound magic, doesn't it? But it's so not. It's beautiful science. Tell us a little bit more about some of the clients that you work with. And you mentioned, I think, in one of your emails to me that we would also acknowledge for ourselves these high achieving perfectionists and and how we are wired in some way to burn out more. I think that's perfectionism and high achievement and sides of a coin, which have so many positive sides. And I think that's where workplaces benefit 
from our high achievement, from our rigor and enthusiasm and all those things. But then the downside is if our expectations of ourselves are not partly managed by others around us, because I think we do need help with that. We're always going to be striving. So we do need someone else to normalize those expectations at a lower level. That's why I think workplaces are so important in this journey. That's definitely can lead to more burnout. So tell me a little bit about how you're helping clients in particular who sound and look like me. My clients are just so fabulous. I love them to bits and they're clever and they're deeply kind and they really care about other people. They really care about their children or their families um, and their friends and the world around them. So I think that the combination of being clever and also really kind plus perfectionism. And so when I say perfectionism, a lot of people say, I'm not a perfectionist, you should see my house. (laughs) Or I'm not a perfectionist, I totally do B plus work. And that's really not what it is. It's really about having these relentless, unachievable standards for yourself in some areas of life. It's not going to be across the board. So it might be that you have to be the perfect manager and and see that no one is ever upset with you or upset full stop. Or it might be that you have to be this perfect mother plus someone that's always perfectly available. So it's really looking at these, these pockets where you're trying to stay safe by being perfect. You're trying to make sure that you're always going to be enough and accepted and safe socially. It's that real primitive brain that's worried about our safety. So that combination is what I see a lot with my clients. And yeah, it it can definitely lead to burnout. And I generally catch people before burnout, thankfully, and sometimes don't. But regardless, because I do the mind and body practices, the body practices are just essential for avoiding burnout. And if you're burnt out, for never going there again and for your healing. So essentially, would you say that's part of your unique approach? Is this very much the body experience that you teach people? Yeah. And I surprised myself about that because I was really never, I'm not an athlete. I was never really into body stuff. I certainly um, wasn't listening to mine for the majority of my life for um, various reasons. Yeah, it actually is so huge. And it's because it gives us that window into our own truth, which also sounds a bit woo-woo, but it's it's essentially just do you want to go to that party or not? Yes or no? Your mind will tell you 17 reasons why you have to go and your body doesn't give two hoots about all the reasons, <laughs> right? Your body is just like, no, or yes, please. So it's as simple as that. What do I want to eat for breakfast? What do I want to wear to work? What do I want to um, do with my child right now? Does it feel right? Does my body say, yes, I want to play? Or does my body say, yeah, I'd like to make some scones with you? And then obviously there's some negotiation with your child, but you can apply it to any part of life. And it really gives you such insight and it makes your energy go through the roof, fulfillment go through the roof, just joy. You get to know yourself. I think, as I say, still got some work on my end in that area, but you're motivating me again to think about it. So one of the things we chatted about briefly before um, we started the recording was how both of us, our backgrounds in public health, make us systems thinkers. And clearly you're putting the causes of burnout around our socialization, which is part of a, a system that we're living in. How else do you place your coaching in a systems approach or how else do you see that 
you help your your clients see that we are part of this system that we need to either change or be more aware of or be more compassionate with ourselves because this is where we're at how do you approach it yeah having trained in public health and I've got a master's and a PhD in women and mental well-being and and specifically my PhD is in women work and mental well-being so really looking at the level of society in terms of a lot around patriarchal influences, so to do with how that filters down through government policies, workplace regulations and laws, what our workplaces look like for casual women versus women who are working full-time and what protections they have, but also the benefits that they have. So say in Australia, they stopped paying casual workers double time, as in getting double their rate, hourly rate on a Sunday, and, and I think maybe even on a Saturday. And what that meant was that there were a whole lot of women who would take casual work on of a weekend while they were looking after their children to supplement the family income that suddenly got half their wage removed. So it's those sorts of government level decisions that are made. And then we have the workplace level, what companies can do. Then we have managerial levels and then we have the individual level. So really looking at all of the social impacts like class women of different social classes are having different experiences at work and different experiences of burnout there's an article that just came out in refinery talking about how first nations women are having really terrible burnout there are different experiences of burnout depending on what color your skin is what communities you're in and so it's really looking at all of the different aspects that create our identities and looking at the society that we're in and seeing how that impacts on our experiences of work, on our mental health and on burnout. I'm going to give you the magic wand. What can we do? I really want to help people become advocates in in this area. And I think part of that is presenting a vision of how it could be different or, or at least some strategies to get there. I would So I used to work with this brilliant professor that says we need men to start working like women. And what is meant by that is this idea of let's put a cap on working hours. Let's actually look at the evidence, which shows that our quality of work decreases rapidly the more we work. And let's look at that when you combine caregiving with work, you need to work even less to maintain your mental health and physical health. So let's make everyone, not just mothers but everyone work less if you're giving me magical wand I'm saying four days a week and some countries are starting that there's so much evidence Jacqueline that's what drives me bonkers is the the lack of use of evidence so definitely have men work like women have force men to be caregivers in the same way that women are because if you're given that option it's shown that there's still stigma around men taking it up so it actually has to be compulsory otherwise men won't take it up because they're penalised socially and also professionally. And I do feel like I have to say that my ex is actually a phenomenal (laughs) father and caregiver, so it's hashtag not all men. Also just making sure that workplaces are actually safe for women and are actually safe in terms of harassment but also in terms of women of colour and disabled women who are not feeling safe either psychologically or physically, not feeling um, 
like they belong and that they're welcomed and valued. And interestingly, there's a collaborative called the Valuable 500. And basically 500 companies have pledged to address disability in the workplaces. And they were doing a lot of work around the the Paralympics. And so that's when I heard about their campaigns. And recently they were posting because it was inclusion week in the UK and they were basically posting and saying diversity is having a seat at the table. Inclusion is having a voice at that table and belonging is having your voice heard at that table. So I thought that was so helpful because it's not just that seat. It's not just that seat. Nothing could be truer the idea of quotas is still debated as to whether that works or not. Having quotas of certain number of women, certain number of women of colour, certain number of people with disabilities in positions, they're a good start, I think. They're not the whole solution. But then there's other things. Leave for domestic violence, leave for miscarriages. And when I say leave, paid leave. And, you know, I'd even, if we're magic wanding it, I'd say leave for going through IVF. Yeah. So my last magic wand would definitely be there's a whole heap of women that are trying to work whilst also, or should I say, doing paid work, whilst also caring for children with additional needs and disabilities. And they are just next level amazing in terms of what they're managing. So support for those women too. And I think that definitely was something in Isabel Roskam's parental burnout work. Very little about the number of children, your income, all these other um, factors about the family were not related to burnout, but caring for a child with special needs definitely was. And I've been in coaching groups with women that, that have children with special needs. And my son is on the autism spectrum and very high functioning but I certainly struggled to find the right educational solution for him around the same time as my burnout. And in some ways I was grateful because when I left work, I could then spend the time looking for that solution for him because he was, he was very unhappy and wasn't thriving in any way. And it was so fascinating to see him change schools and to be reminded myself about how the environment frames our behavior. And he was like a different person overnight. I realized he used to just cross the threshold at school and believe that he didn't belong and believe you know, that he was stupid. And then he went into this different environment and overnight he believed he was good at math. It was such a good reminder because in my same moment as I was changing my environment, thinking, yeah, the environment does, it shapes us. That's part of that system, right? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And really thinking about just the time and effort that it takes to do all that advocacy, all the research, all the emotional labor, all the cognitive labor, all of the attending appointments. It's huge. It's a huge extra So you've talked a little bit about being in Australia and and when you mentioned something like bereavement leave, I was reading that there is that on the legislation. What are some of the other things that you think Australia is doing better at that we could be adopting in the US and other parts of the world? It so depends where you are in the world, right? Because there's obviously places that are doing things better than Australia, say in Scandinavia. And New Zealand is often pipping us at the post now. But I feel like the obvious thing for the States uh, is really paid maternity leave. I mean, the culture of having to go back to work when you are quite literally still bleeding and creating milk and your hormones are 
going like crazy is just it actually makes me want to cry for all the women that are doing that and just the complete lack of social protection in America is quite terrifying in terms of free healthcare. it really is a systems level thing also just the culture of not really having holidays the whole like we get four weeks paid leave a year and it's often less than that in America. Yeah, people I really feel are being asked for everything and given so little in terms of their lives. They're being treated more like robots, I think, than like people. So, yeah, definitely the social safety nets around paid maternity leave. And I think it's really helpful for people to hear that in some ways again you're not saying it with any judgment it's simply that this is not the norm elsewhere in the world and so people do look at it the U.S. and go this is a tragedy it is a tragedy and it's not okay and it's not political it's just human rights so let's talk about what you would actually recommend one behavior change that women or companies could make today to make a difference, something that they can really start doing today? So for women, I would love, I I really invite all of you to start with the premise that there is nothing wrong with you. You have not failed in any way because you were burnt out. You have actually been socialized to be in this situation, to give everything, to never rest, to never stop. That is like an ideal woman, right? So it is not your fault. That is the first thing I would just like to point out. And then in terms of the behavior change, it's noticing your thoughts. And there's a really nice little trick that you can do, which is basically, I call it, run it through a mediocre white man filter. And it's basically, would a mediocre white man worry about this? So next time you think, oh, I really should have done X, Y, and Z, or what if someone's thinking X, Y, and Z, just think, would a man be worried about this? And often you'll find yourself instantly relieved. So that's my favourite. Very quick and dirty one for behaviour change for women. For companies, I would invite companies to stop resisting the realities of working mothers. Can we just stop acting like this is a strange phenomenon that has never been seen before and that we're still trying to work out? It is so normal. So that mind shift would open up a whole world for companies just really making your workplace as supportive and attractive to working parents of all backgrounds as you can so just going through and looking at everything in your workplace through that filter for the workplace it's really looking through and like okay is there somewhere to breast pump here that's comfortable and not a janitor's closet is there um Childcare nearby. How much does a childcare cost? Are we scheduling meetings early in the morning and after three o'clock, i.e., are you scheduling them outside of school pickup time? If you just look, there's stuff all around you that could be changed with one email to everyone. We are no longer having meetings but before nine o'clock and after three. Done. You have just saved 500 women from being incredibly stressed and about 10 men who are doing the pickups and drop-offs. That's great. I love these filters to think through. Yeah, because if you could just put on the glasses of a mum as you look at your company's day, and sadly that's because there's not the mums at the top doing that, or if they are there, how free do they feel to create the world to suit their needs? Yeah, and I think it's only getting to the point now where women are being allowed to be women. 
more instead of having to really hide their femininity and their emotions and all those sorts of things to to survive in the workplace. So now is the time when women can say, yeah, I do want to be home. And certainly in some of the research that I've done, the women that are working long hours that have husbands that are at home full-time or nannies that are at home full-time, they're still absolutely busting themselves when they leave work to be as present, to still cook dinners when they can, to still give their husbands good rests and they're trying to do everything. So they're still having a very different experience to men who are working long hours in those um, positions. Clara, this has just been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. And I love your advice. It's very concrete. And that's what I love about coaching. There's always these tools to use. There's things that you can take away from coaching that are so just practical and usable on a daily basis. They're not complicated. And I think that's great. You can definitely incorporate coaching tools into your daily life. I've been trying to say this to listeners. You can ask for coaches through your workplace. Many workplaces will sponsor a coach because it has such great return on investment. So don't be afraid to ask because if you can't afford it yourself, you can ask through work as well. Absolutely. And be encouraged. I always say with coaching that even if you can't afford to have a coach, just follow people that you gel with online and you get so much free coaching just from reading posts. There's so many free Facebook groups and you can get access to coaching anywhere from $50 to $25,000. There's a price bracket for everyone. So just persist. Find someone that you gel with and follow along. Thanks so much for listening today. You might have noticed in the intro that I mentioned being a TEDx speaker. This was such an amazing experience, and I'll be doing a whole mini episode about it in the coming weeks. Please view the talk on YouTube or contact me through my website, drjacquelinecurr.com, and I'll send you the link when it's released. I also have a question for you. Does your company recognize the issue of burnout, but you haven't yet found the solutions that work? to improve employee well-being and retain talent? If you think my approach to burnout could be helpful for your organization, please contact me through LinkedIn or on my website. But remember, as a behavior change scientist, I'm satisfied with nothing less than real measurable behavior change, not attitude change or good intentions or good PR. I deliver actionable solutions. As a TEDx and keynote speaker, I can provide an empowering talk to kickstart your efforts and to get everyone on the same page because burnout requires individual, organizational, and cultural change. I can provide a strategic plan, target behaviors, and clear steps. If you already have external programs in place, I can provide a behavioral analysis and evaluation to see if they are really working. If your company is demonstrating that it really cares through meaningful internal and external investments and regular assessments, but you're still struggling to implement policies and changes that have impact, I can help identify the roadblocks and provide a collaborative process to help you make progress. My goal is to prevent burnout and empower working mums to keep changing the world. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, 
please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Control, you're a fighter. Push the limits and see it. You're already there. Told you we going higher. Ain't no stopping us. We're going in for the win. And we're gonna celebrate. Then we're gonna do it all over again. And we're gonna rock this place. Cause this is our day. Do it all over again And we're gonna ride